Hello, this is Chris Trump. Welcome to the Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome, welcome once again to The Probiotic Life. I am your host, Ben Klenner. And thanks for joining us today. Uh, You might be curious about probiotics. You might be curious about what do we talk about on this show, The Probiotic Life. And really, we're talking about the connections between human health and soil health. And that is why I have brought back on Chris Trump. He's a natural farmer. Uh, He's one of the teachers of natural farming uh, that's sort of spreading it to the English-speaking world. A lot of natural farming developed in Southeast Asia. Um, And specifically, he teaches Korean natural farming. And so we're going to talk about Korean natural farming today, how Chris got involved, um, sort of why he started teaching and some of the stuff that he's been doing uh, with Korean natural farming. And yes, you know, soil health is such a big part of our health. And the more I delve into it, I see... It's all connected. If the soil is healthy, then we are going to be healthy. It's a a natural byproduct. And there's all different aspects uh, that we talk about in the different um, episodes. But today we're talking specifically about natural farming, working with nature to develop soil health so that uh, the plants can be healthy, that we ingest healthy plants, and actually that we're living in an environment with healthy plants where those microorganisms can actually uh, create part of our healthy microbiome. So uh, we're going to talk about the philosophy. We're going to be talking about the differences, uh, cultural differences, uh, indigenous microorganisms, and really get into what is natural farming and how we can use that as a, a medium to connect back with nature. So I'm excited to share this interview with you. Uh, Stick around, it's a bit longer than usual, but I wanted to get into the juicy details of natural farming with Chris. You can check out what Chris is doing at uh, his website, naturalfarming.co, and I'll have a link to um, all the other things we talk about. So please enjoy this interview with Chris Trump. On our show today, we are bringing it back one of our guests, uh, a natural farming teacher and expert, and a bit of a uh, a celebrity in the natural farming world in some respects. Welcome to the show, Chris Trump. Thanks for having me, Ben. Good talking with you again. And uh, where are you at the moment? I am in Eagle, Idaho, just outside of Boise, and I'm sitting in our 
Um, we're new to this property. We moved here in November, and so we created some garden and uh, sitting in our front yard and going to pick away at the weeds while we talk. Fantastic. So, Chris, I wanted to have you back on the show um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them is because uh, I've been keeping in touch with you. I would consider you one of my mentors in Korean natural farming and um, want to sort of bring everybody along with us on this journey of Korean natural farming. But for those who don't really know much about Korean natural farming, um, we've done a couple of ep- episodes, one with Chris and a couple with uh, Drake Winett. Um, so, yeah, if you if you want to just give us a, just a, a very brief what is Korean natural farming and then we won't hang around there too much. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, you know, in um, 2008, um, this man, uh, Cho Han Yu, uh, who we call, respectfully call Master Cho, um, came to Hawaii and began teaching um, these methods. Um, and it's, it's a... Um, kind of a, a bringing together of um, long-standing um, agricultural practices. Um, in, uh, the, a lot of it comes uh, from uh, Japan, China, and South Korea, um, and uh, where they continue to hand down um, effective agricultural tools. Um, and as it turns out, um, it's... Uh, by and large aimed at working with what nature's already doing and the especially the microbial life present in uh, soil systems and so um only place we call it korean natural farming is in the u.s <laughs> as a as a overriding kind of name uh, i'm sure it's some in the um australia as well but in most of the world it's just called natural farming um and, and uh, you know, in, in Thailand, it's practiced in Thailand and all over Southeast Asia and Africa and um, India. And, uh, yeah, it's just um, partnering with nature to grow um, abundant food um, and uh, be profitable because it's really low cost. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons that it appealed to me and a lot of people is the fact that um, is the idea of working with nature and, you know, what I'm trying to explore on their probiotic life is, you know, our connections to nature and what does that look like? How can we partner with nature? How can we be stewards of nature? As your uh, your mm. Instagram is soil steward. I really like that. Mm. So um, that's a little bit about Korean natural farming. If you're interested more about the basics, you can go listen to some of the other podcasts. But um, Chris, what is what, what's changed since the last time we talked? We talked um, on that podcast. It was about a year and a half ago now, I think. And what are you up to these days? You know, um, as we succeeded on our farm, um, and really, um, so I farm, grew up farming, um, macadamia nuts on the big island of Hawaii. And, um, in 2010, 11, 
we converted um, 750 acres by stages um, to a certified organic farm using uh, natural farming practices. So we made a ton of IMO4 and uh, tended to the microbial life of our soil and our trees. And somewhere along the lines in that journey, um, I came to believe that this had um, this this method and, and kind of the empowering of farmers in this way had the potential to really shift um, our society and world um, and kind of the, the evils that exist in our agricultural systems. And um, so I, I kind of sat down and got a little tactical about it. Like what, what is, what, what's the place where this needs to take off for it to be um, uh, somewhat of a positive revolution in, um, in our agricultural systems. Uh, and especially, you know, because I live here, here in the U S um, and my conclusion, right or wrong, kind of what I came up with is that it needed to be adopted in uh, the commercial commercial agricultural system, the, the places where um, a bulk or a, a large quantity of food is being produced. And um, so I've been kind of had that as a lower priority, not the main focus, but a lower priority goal. And so there's been um, some really cool opportunities to work with some larger farmers in, um, here in the U.S. And I've uh, really been enjoying that. Um, I also coach um, some uh, not small scale farmers uh, in different places in the world and just kind of talk them through the process. And so that's been a lot of fun, um, something of a uh, success story, in, in my opinion, for, for kind of shifting. Because what happens is they're starting to make more money. Um, and, um, they start talking to their neighbors or their neighbors come over and ask them questions. And that's been really fun to watch. So yeah, that's been in the last couple of years. And so you have been traveling quite a bit. You were, um, not too long ago in Myanmar. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I love Myanmar. You want to tell us yeah. a little bit about what you're doing over there and, and what's happening since you've been there? Sure. Yeah, I've been to Myanmar um, four times now. Um, the time before last, it was kind of Myanmar via the Thai-Myanmar border, working with um, um, some of the refugee camps and um, some community development um, kind of Myanmar natives um, there. And that was special, but this last trip, I um, partnered with a um, coffee farm uh, and coffee production uh, facility um, called Behind the Leaf Coffee, and um, last year they won first place in Myanmar for coffee, as far as quality uh, and taste, um, but they're, they're kind of partnering with local coffee farmers to enable uh, a higher price um, for their coffee. So these coffee farmers that they buy from, uh, they now buy from about a 1,000 coffee farmers there in northern Myanmar, um, just uh, about an hour from Heho. And um, 
they're producing incredible coffee and the quality of life of these farmers is improving because they're instead of kind of the trader coming by and offering them what he offers and then hoping that it's a good price, um, they have a established relationship with a um, somewhat benevolent um, organization, very benevolent, I would say. And uh, so they were able to get a grant um, out of Germany to do some training as well as create these... um, drying racks for the coffee. They have this huge capacity need for drying racks in the center of season. And um, in the off season, that space is not used. And so um, they came up with a, a raised bed system where they throw a metal rack on top for the drying season. They take off and store the metal rack in the off season and, uh, and are able to produce a crop in these raised beds. So, those are pretty new. They, they put them in and that was in conjunction. That grant was in conjunction with me um, doing education. And so I taught um, about 700 um, Myanmar farmers about um, effective composting methods um, and using the, the resources they had available to them. So that was a lot of fun. We turned uh, a lot of compost by hand. So that was exhausting (laughs) and I couldn't be, um, you know, outworked by students, you know, that just wouldn't, wouldn't be good. So we, uh, we sweated and, and learned, and then we went into kind of Korean natural farming and, and went through a bunch of preps in just, uh, two days. I was there for uh, a week, but we spent a lot of time with, with other things. But as far as really digging into Korean natural farming, it was a really condensed two days, um, but they ate it up. And then we had a farmer fun day, kind of a tour day. And a lot of the students that were there for the Korean natural farming training, we had kind of some display tables and stuff out for the farmer fun day. And the students, because they spoke the language, were the ones, you know, teaching people about what they did and what it means and why. And so they're all going to go back home and start playing with this stuff and share with their neighbors. And I just, uh, that's one of my favorite things about Korean natural farming is I didn't go there and sell them a product that they then need to order, you know, and it's going to fluctuate on price or the price is going to go up. We didn't, you know, get them a seed that they have to buy from us every year. Um, We shared a bit of knowledge and they're able to go and practice it, grow in it and, um, become practitioners of, uh, you know, using it to have more abundant food or prevent disease. And they, if I never go back, if I never see them again, they don't really need anything more. Yes. Could they benefit from more, a little more knowledge? Totally. But the reality is they're not beholden to anyone. And they're, um, they were just given a little bit of a key to understand how nature works. And that's, I think that's really, really special. And so that's some of my favorite kind of work um, is is working with farmers in third world scenarios where it has this direct impact on community and quality of life. And it has implications that trickle down to all kinds of things. Um, many farmers in the third world are faced with um, really bad situations like starvation Um they, uh, and this is off topic and I'm sorry, but 
little bit of a soapbox. You know, they're they're faced with selling the child um, so that the other child children can eat, and uh, so this idea of human trafficking that's that's um, prevalent throughout the world um, can ha- can be directly affected by improving the quality of life of farmers, improving the um, production of their farms, and so that's those are you know, ways to participate in some of these global problems. And I feel really grateful to to have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. It sounds um, really empowering too, empowering for you and empowering for the people that you're teaching. Yeah, it feels like it. You know, that a lot of what you talk about, Chris, um, reminds me of, the principles of permaculture, and I think it ties in really well with permaculture. But uh, one thing that you said just really stood out to me was just helping people to understand a little bit of a key of understanding nature or working with nature. So I like that. I like that philosophy, and I want to talk a little bit more about that about connecting with nature. Um, you know, the journey that I've been on, especially in the last year or so. Um, reading The One Straw Revolution, Masanobu Fukuoka, and um, reading books like uh, The Girl Who Sang to the Buffalo, which is um, about, I think it's the Ojibwe tribe. It's a story, but it's a a teaching story. Um, Really understanding or or understanding that there there is knowledge out there. Um, There is... Uh, dynamics out there that we don't understand but if we can start to partner with nature that um, everything becomes more abundant becomes uh, better for everyone so what would you say is um, what makes a good natural farmer the qualities of the people that you teach what do you what do you Mm. see people who really take it up what what's what's in their hearts that's a great question um, you know, I think that um, it doesn't have to be perfect humility, but I think a an aspect of humility is um, really kind of central. If you if you're looking for a common denominator between the people that really succeed with it, and I think it's just the The humility to say, "I can learn something here," or "I don't, I don't know everything," um, or "What I do know can be can be added to," and I'm open to that. Um, that's huge. Um, I I encounter the opposite also, where I know everything there is about you know uh, soil biology. You know what can this you know simple simple methods or simple technology teach me if I'm already so learned in these these areas and I think that you know I think with anything but especially with taking the time to um, uh, kind of learn the nuance of this um, requires a bit of humility um, yeah we um we saw some things in just being observant farmers, um, which I think is the, the second kind of common denominator is just uh, willing to be observant 
uh, we saw a through a series of unfortunate events, we had crop failure and we saw kind of this thing happen with some fallow fields in our macadamia nut that enabled us to kind of say, you know, we don't know anything about that and our industry doesn't, you know, we're going to be a, um, brand new students. You know, we know nothing about how this natural phenomenon we just observed works. And I think that was for us a huge key to be able to, you know, take a commercial farm and try some of these new things. Um, but I think that people that really do it well are also, um, you know, approaching it in some way like that, where they're saying, okay, I'll, I'll check my expertise or what I already know at the door um, and um, open my, my brain, my heart to... Um, see if there's something more to be understood and um master cho um teaches this too um he um it's you know it's translated from from korean i don't know exactly how you'd say it in korean but it's it's the philosophy of the empty mind you know that if if you're gonna succeed in this or do this um that you'll you'll need to empty your mind and um I feel like that doesn't translate amazingly to English, um, just as I've heard him flesh that out. Um, because, you know, we say, oh, well, I shouldn't check my mind at the door. I got to be, you know, critical or, or, you know, kind of um, assess things. And it's not about checking our mind at the door or, you know, um, taking away the, the powerful tool that your mind is um, as much as it's about allowing space for, um, for understanding to grow, you know, um, if you, uh, you have a packed bin, you can probably see this right here. We, uh, uh, sorry, this will be a, my neighbor's diesel is quite loud. Um, we, we planted our carrots quite close together as you can observe here. And, um, the, the consequence of, you know, if I don't thin this, is that I'll have very, very stunted carrots. And, um, you know, in the end, I, I might have less production than, you know, if I took every other one out. Um, and uh, I think that's kind of the, yeah, an important part of, of learning anything, but uh, especially this that's sometimes, um, I think especially for the Western mind, um, because of the package it comes in, a little bit of kind of Asian culture, um, it, it can be difficult to, especially initially, kind of latch on to. So, yeah, humble heart and open mind, <laughs> those mm -hmm. are probably uh, two central things. Yeah, for sure. They, I mean, those carrots look nice and healthy, and although they are very um, packed together, for everyone who can't see, it's they're very luscious, beautiful leaf on them. Look like they're uh, reaching the sky. Um, yeah. But it makes me think of the One Straw Revolution and Masanobu Fukuoka, and um, when the book was translated into English, the One Straw Revolution, um, the the term got thrown around do nothing farming and when we interviewed larry corn who translated the book he was saying he said he sort of wished that 
um, uh, Fukuoka-san didn't say it that way because people think natural farming is about doing nothing, but it's not about doing nothing. It's about looking to see what nature is doing and taking the lead rather than saying, this is, I know what's best and this is what I'm going to do, which I would translate into every part of our lives, including our health um, and our relationships. Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, example of kind of lost in translation, um, you know. And um, I think another, maybe it's not a example of what you know all the natural farmers have in common. But just another kind of a common error in uh, people seeking to begin natural farming is. You know, they'll hear something about how to do this natural farming technique. And before it's out of the teacher's mouth, they've already began a dialogue in their head of how it's like something they know or how they have an idea on how to improve it. So they've never done it or experienced the effectiveness of it, but have begun theorizing how they might change the recipe um, based on, you know, some internal bias. And I think that's back to, you know, this, this idea in one straw, one straw revolution is, you know, take your, your biases and what you think you need to do as you walk into this place and uh, watch for a little bit, be quiet for a little bit. Don't do anything for a minute and uh, see what you can learn and, it's, it's so strange, you know? So for me, working with commercial farmers where um, in no negative way, you know, they have a bottom line, uh, financial bottom line that is a big deal. You know, they can't ignore that financial bottom line. If they do, they're not in business next year. It's not a sustainable venture. Um but I have to be careful getting too philosophical in some of these things we talk about because take a, an American commercial farmer and start talking about, you know, you know, you just need to be still and observe nature before you, you know, choose to do anything here. And um, I've, you know, I've, I've learned that that's, um, there's a, and, and I think just, also having a commercial farming background, I think there's i I'm very cautious in uh, how I talk about all this because the reality is, yes, there's this, this need to grow as those who understand. Um, and I think there's an interim step um, right now that I'm kind of, juggling or playing with where um, I have these farmers that if they can come to experience how well this works, um, they then grow into valuing it and seeking deeper understanding of how nature works. But um, as it is, there's the, the current kind of agricultural practice of take a soil sample, send it away, get your recipe, buy 
the ingredients of the recipe, you know, NPK, KMAG, you know, um, boron, whatever, whatever your deficiency shows and throw it all on the ground and then, you know, plant and, you know, maybe spray some, you know, fungicides or pesticides, um, to, to take them from there to, um, observing nature. I think, um, I've, I, I believe that there's a need for those who would be an on-ramp to that understanding, to, to kind of coming to desiring to, uh, observe and understand a little bit more. And so that's, that's some of the, the types of conversations I've had and, and finding that balance of, you know, helping people, um, succeed on their farm while, um, moving towards, uh, yeah, better, a greater connection with nature. Yeah, for sure. That, you know, all the farmers that I've met have been very practical people. They, you know, if you start talking about opening your heart, you'll probably lose a a lot of them quite (laughs) quite quickly because it's about how do we get stuff done and what's the bottom line. Um, But, you know, in this journey of the probiotic life, it, uh, I'm relating to it quite similarly of, you know, okay, what specific probiotics do this in my gut, in my microbiome, and how is that going to benefit me, how, you know, improve my life? And then sort of evolving into, oh, like everything is, is um, has this amazing sort of grand design behind it and, we can trust the process, although I'm not a, I'm not really a, an agricultural um, farmer. I do grow a little bit of food, but it's not like I need to make a bottom line. So that so I have a bit of a different stance there, and I think most farmers, <laughs> yeah, well, maybe I have a little bit of a different idea than someone like you, Chris. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm down to hear it. I, I'd love to hear your perspective is it's all a, a learning most farmers what ben what were you gonna say <laughs> well <laughs> um well i was just thinking actually you know maybe most farmers aren't so poetic their creativity isn't um uh it's very practical creativity you know it's like you don't hear very many philosopher farmers although there is you know, Masanobu, Fukuoka, and Joel Salatin. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, well, I think I think it's it's. I, I would I would say it's less a lack of that. Um, you know, I, I agree with you. I think it, experientially, I'd experience it the same way, but I don't think it's the uh, lack of you know uh, the poetic or even the philosophical. Because um, if you ever get a chance to come to America and go to the uh, cowboy poetry competitions, they're they're pretty amazing. Um, okay, but but I think as it regards to farming, you know, um, farmers are approached endlessly with people selling them this or that product. I mean, they uh, any farm of scale is on the list of the um, nutrient importers, uh, companies, whatever the company it is. And they get a salesman call, you know, three times a month. Hey, you know, John over there, I just, you know, this is Greg over at, uh, you know, this and this crop service. And, 
you know, I'm just calling to see if you need anything. Can we help you out with anything? You know, we got this new product here, or this thing here. And so farmers constantly get that. And in the end, those people, those partners, they are, they are strategic partners. People that provide services are really important to farmers. In the end, none of those people are going to show up and bail that last bale of hay or, you know, um, you know, go out in the rain if, you know, if the roof blow, blew off the, the drying facility and you got to hammer it back down, you know, they, the farmer has experience, like, I got to live with every decision I make and every input I put on. And um, if you're selling me a nice story, I'll, I'll nod, but uh, I'm not going to wax philosophical with you about my farm because in the end I'm, I'm the one that's got to put sweat and tools to the ground and, and get it done. And so I, I think it's more of a just realism that, that, uh, and, and even a healthy skepticism that, uh, farmers have for survival sake. Mm-hmm. So, so tell us a bit more, you know, you, you mentioned, um, sort of the the cultural translation that's been happening from Korea and um, and Asian culture in general. Um, tell, mm-hmm. us, tell us a bit about Master Cho and, and how he sort of evolved uh, what he did and um, how that started to translate and, I guess, evolve into what it is now. Yeah. Yeah, Master Cho... Um, he he tells a story about um, kind of being a young man um, uh, working towards kind of um, being having being a person that brings in an income. Uh, I mean, kind of a, a young professional working towards being a young professional, and um, he observed a a problem. I think this is the seventies ish. Um, and uh, he saw the, the the kind of beginning. South Korea was um, has gone through such a boom of um, economic and kind of um, production um, in the last you know thirty years. Um, it's it's massive. Less, more more yeah. More than that, 50 years, but just it's it's been big. So as we were using all these chemical fertilizers, you know, since the First World War, um, it was later for Korea. And he saw it coming in and he said, this is going to be a problem for farmers. Um, we need to show another way. And um, they, uh, he began um, with chickens and um, he studied, uh, went on to study in Japan with a, a doctor of enzymes and um, kind of had several different teachers. Um, and he'd credit 4-H and um, the Bible as, as central teachers in that too. You know, he learned um, uh, one, one of the uh, things he talks about is that the... Um, and that you know, believing in uh, a designer, a painter of this, or, or an orchestra uh, leader of this incredible symphony of nature, 
um, there was a, a beginning or a creation. And in the Bible, the earth um, comes up out of the water. There's first the water, and then the earth comes up out of the water. And so he, he calls earth uh, or, or the ocean the mother of the earth, you know, or the ocean the uh, progenitor of the land. And so we see seawater in, you know, in the elements of everything growing um, that's followed. Uh, plants and animals followed after that. And and so in the cytoplasm of a plant, in the, in the blood of a plant, there's um, a 1 to 30 seawater dilution. And, um, and so there's this uh, part in natural farming as we, if we apply for remineralization, if we apply for some of this mineral, we apply seawater diluted one to 30. And we're, you know, we think about it when you get, you know, um, if you go to a hospital with a, with a problem, what's one of the first things they do? Give you saline. Yeah. They, they put an IV in because our blood's much the same. It's seawater diluted. I forget exactly the dilution for human blood, but it's, it's very similar to plants. And, um, and so he, he, um, started succeeding with, um, uh, chickens on, on a really, in a really cool way, both with feed and with living floor and, uh, started to share and teach some of what he was discovering, what he had learned. And, um, brought together, you know, farmers and offered really free information for the most part. And, um, uh, he got, he got, um, uh, arrested for that, um, because it was the end of the Korean war and there's still kind of a fear of communism, uh, taking off. So he got arrested as a communist, um, because he was, you know, bringing, bringing people together, um, and sharing knowledge, and um, it was mistaken for, for something, you know, um, somehow negative to the government. I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of that, but um, yeah. Then, then he went on, um, kind of now not not really a wanted man in this country, but just kind of, you know, looked at closely. So he he was sent kind of out um, by friends and people that cared about him. And he went on to go to India and Thailand and start sharing this this kind of elegant system of tending to the microbial life of, of the soil and, and partnering with nature and working with farmers. Um, and there's impacts um, in those places that he went. Um, we're, we're now like generation into this of, of incredible impacts into some of these places. I think there's a documentary um, or, or a story about uh, his work in the Gobi Desert um, uh, teaching how to grow in real low uh, water conditions and I mean huge impact in his journey. Um, there, there have been um, yeah, adaptations and, and um, kind of things that have shifted and how he's taught over the years, um, even just since I've met him. Um, but I think what I would take away from those shifts is just um, some, you know, kind of in line with uh, something he said to me and, and uh, to a lot of us as he taught in Hawaii, 
It's just, hey, this is, I'm teaching you how it works in Korea. You're going to have to take the understanding and then find the details of how it works in Hawaii. And, and so, um, again, it was, it was kind of, this isn't some, um, rigid thing. This is still, it remains and it, it continues to be an observation of how nature works. And so in a different climate, um, and then, uh, something he said to me, you know, cruising along in a bus when we were going from one farm to another one time is, uh, that natural farming's not done. He says, you need to, to finish this work. And, and just that idea that this isn't some total, you know, complete understanding of how nature works. You know, it's, it's a, it's a key, a part, uh, I call it a really elegant method. You know, there's a lot of methods around the world intending and partnering with nature. And this is just a really elegant one that's scalable. Um, but he, um, yeah, he and his family is continuing the work. His son is a um, chemical engineer and genius, and uh, so he's developed uh, natural pesticides that are highly effective, and he's taken some of the natural farming and uh, tried to make it simpler um, or just, you know, more accessible, and especially with poor farmers or, or for really low cost. And so that's a, a wonderful thing, and that's Jadam natural farming and uh, Jadam's like people, people of nature or, um, and, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely, I think even in my observation been a journey, but I think all of those, any, any shifts or kind of growing along the way are the, the things that nature's taught, you know, the things that have been corrected by or, or, um, adjusted by, you know, how nature works. And so, um, you know, right now I'm in Boise, Idaho. I did this for, you know, 10-ish years in Hawaii. And um, how I use, how I make IMO3, for example, in Boise, Idaho is drastically different from how I make it in Hawaii, you know, as far as moisture content and materials used and, and all of that. And I think all of that's just, you know, kind of adds validity or kind of confirms the um, ability for this to be done anyway. Mm. Chris, I'm going to have to stop you there and, and ask you to move away from those crickets. They're starting to get a bit loud. Oh, yeah. Sorry. It is It is the, uh, the time of night. You know, Chris, it's interesting... Um, my wife has actually really gotten into K dramas lately, and uh, and I've okay. uh, obliged and and watched them with her. Some of them are um, more interesting, tolerable than other ones. Um, but what uh-huh. I find really fascinating is is the, uh, looking into another culture. You know, um, spending a yeah. couple, couple of days in a country, you might see. Things that it, well, you will see things that are different, especially a different language. Um, but when you s- start to see the same things over and over again, as with what wh- what I'm seeing in Korean dramas, is oh, okay, they have a, 
a, like a deep-rooted understanding about, you know, um, the way life is, the way um, what what death is about. And, you know, um, I think Koreans are mostly um, uh, have like a, a Tao philosophy. Um, so mm-hmm. it's it's really interesting to see that in just in um, these K dramas. And what I'm I'm interested to know is what is the, what what are some of the things that you have like evolved, or I guess you've been able to understand that translation and been able to evolve it in in what you're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting to learn um, from another culture in that way. Growing up uh, Hawaii, um, as well as California, and growing up in Hawaii, it's, it's by and large an Asian culture. And so, you know, some of that um, was really normal for me, um, you know, and, and other things are very unique to Korean culture. And um, so I think, yeah, I think that um, uh, maybe, I mean, from a commercial agricultural standpoint, that, you know, to these farms, we'd go to these rice farms and they're run by, you know, two couples, you know, husband, wife, uh, neighbors, and they're two one acre rice farms. And, uh, the guys, you know, um, nothing, nothing, no, not throwing any stones, but have no idea what they do or, or how they, how they, uh, are involved in the farm. Maybe they take you to market or they're busy with some other venture in the city, but the women are, are growing an acre of rice each and they come over to each other's land and they plant. Um, and their income for that one acre is incredible. Like they're well-off farmers um, because they don't have a whole lot of overhead. You know, they don't have workman's home, you know, um, et cetera. And so their, their dollars per acre, it was really great, you know, as, as um, Master Cho would, would go around to these farms that were his students and he would, he would kind of prod them until they told us what they were making because that was an important part of, you know, the story or the, the success or the, of natural farming. And um, I think just um, recognizing that that, you know, we, we have high costs. We just got to get more yield so that we can pay for our costs. Um, but sometimes, you know, dropping some of that overhead, dropping some of those line items of costs um, is actually the answer. And, um, and that directly affecting you can, you could have the same yield um, with, you know, half as much cost, And that has a direct impact on the profitability for a farmer. So that was a, that was a fun thing, uh, a neat thing. Um, and then, um, I think also just the, um, the interconnectivity of, of livestock, um, production with, um, produce production, you know, like, like crop production, um, veggies or fruit of some sort and, and how effectively that was done in Korea where, 
you know, instead of having just a lettuce farm uh, or just a pig farm or just a chicken farm, they had a, you know, vegetable farm and a pig farm, both um, bringing in income and much of their waste or, or kind of byproducts of their vegetable farm became, um, you know, had a direct impact on their feed costs on their pig farm, you know, and so they're, they're able to, um, you know, be more profitable as, as, as pig farmers because they have a direct stream of free food um, from their, from their produce farm. And, and so I think, um, a lot of interesting things like that. Um, another interesting cultural thing is, um, you know, that was kind of hard initially is Master Cho is talking about how I need to look at weed and, and stop, you know, you know, just stop calling things weeds. And, um, and that was, that was a, a bit of a mind bender. And uh, it's still, you know, I'm still learning on that front. But um, all of a sudden, I started needing all of this kind of organic material as my fertilizer because we were making these ferments that were fertilizer. And so I'd use a lot of this kind of, um, you know, weed material or just kind of, you know, quote-unquote useless greenery and all of a sudden that became really valuable, you know, plant, uh, fertilizer. And, um, and, uh, then that, that learning went on, you know, uh, to, I was at, a when I first moved to Idaho, I was running a couple acre, um, farm that was subsidized. I was getting paid by a nonprofit to produce food and it would go to the local food bank. And then we were also inviting in refugees to farm. And so I was having a conversation with a um, Congolese lady. Um, she was a refugee and said, hey, you know, you guys are some of our VIPs. You know, what do you want to grow? We'll make sure the water is on, you know, and uh, we'll, we'll tend to the soil and you can just come, you know, and tend to your, your crop. What do you want to grow? And she told me this name and I couldn't figure it out. And she finally showed me a picture and it was amaranth. And were our our main lead that year was amaranth and we had like we had you know in the, in the areas where we weren't farming we didn't have a hundred percent cultivation we had like a half acre of amaranth and this is what she wanted to grow and we're trying to you know dig it out and and eradicate and um and they came all year long and they would take bushels full of amaranth and in, in Kenya it is the absolute highest valued um, vegetable that you can buy. The the favorite vegetable of the Kenyan dishes is amaranth and they stir fry it and they put it in their dishes. And it was just a mind twister for me, just recognizing like, wait, what is a weed? You know, and and um, and and then kind of like, well why the heck are we spending all this energy buying seed, weeding, doing all this stuff to grow food on these two acres? You know, all these specific vegetables we want to grow where we could literally like clean it up, let the amaranth go to seed, you know, spread it out. And we could have two acres of 
amaranth that we never have to weed, don't even have to water, don't have to fertilize. It grows like crazy and we could just chop it fresh and take it to the African market and sell it at a great price and never even have to go in the garden for work again. <laughs> you know, like not that we wouldn't go in the garden, but like, and, and it's just, it's just been this fun thing. Like sometimes I choose to grow, you know, uh, strawberry because I'm, you know, fixated on the, you know, I got to have a strawberry when, um, you know, I can, I can buy strawberries from a good strawberry grower and produce the thing that, that works well where I am or, uh, yeah, it's been, there's, there's a lot to that, but I think, I think just, um, kind of some of these philosophical ideas of, you know, what nature is already doing and how we partner with it has been, uh, been a big learning journey for me. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, that, that story makes me think of, um, at the last house we were at, we had some, uh, Nigerian neighbors and uh, he recognized this amaranth that I was growing that I, I wasn't really growing it. I had I got some, you know, homemade compost from um, from somewhere else and it sprouted. And he was like, oh, you know this? I'm like, yes, yeah, amaranth. He's like, oh, this is what we, you know, we eat this in, in Nigeria. It's like, wow. And yeah, over here, you don't have to do much to it at all. Like, <laughs> it just... It grows. There's so many seeds in it. It just goes everywhere. You know, it's the same with um, with nettle, with stinging nettle. In in Europe, I think it's something goes for something like ten or fifteen euros for a hundred grams at the markets. And it's like over here, people are just getting rid of it. Yeah, we have a slightly different soil, so it's it's abundant here, and for them, it's hard to grow. And meanwhile, we're like you know, battling to try and grow these things that maybe aren't as perfect for, yeah, it's, you know, it's great. I think, um, I think I, I appreciate when my, my paradigms get a challenge and I have to look at the world a little differently because of perspective. Mm, okay. So let's, let's, let's jump on that, uh, switch a little bit, but jump on that idea of changing paradigms. Um, I saw you did a great presentation at the Regenerative Cannabis Conference just this last time, um, and you went more into in-depth into IMO, and that really helped me to understand IMO, Indigenous Microorganisms. Uh, if you don't know what that is, you can learn more about that. Chris has got some uh, great videos I'll link to. Um, but for me, that really sort of uh, made me want to focus on getting good at creating IMO. Can you talk a little bit about IMO, what it is, what it isn't, and I guess breaking some paradigms by um, the microscope work that you've done, the soil food web um, work that you've done with that? Yeah, yeah, totally. I think the, that, well, I'll just say this, if if that isn't part of what you're doing with Korean natural farming, um, then you, you haven't really begun to use this method as it's intended. Um, IMO production and the use of it on the farm and kind of the cultivating of the, the microbes that you're, you're bringing in there, um, that's really the, the whole package with natural farming. The foliar applications and all these inputs you can make 
to um, spray directly on the plants. These are wonderful tools, but they're so insignificant in, in, in terms of impact in comparison with this method of tending to the microbial life of the soil have in this IMO4 process. Um, IMO stands for indigenous microorganism, and the numbers behind it just are in reference to the steps, because there's four steps, and you can do a fifth step too, um, which is bringing in the high nitrogen. But um, the goal or the, the purpose of the step one through three is to get to number four. You know, you're, you're really, really only wanting to use the IMO4 um, as far as applying it to your land. Um, and then we use indigenous microorganism, that I word being key, as it's, um, it's microbial life that is in your general area. So it likes your temperature, rainfall, barometric pressure, and it's thrived there for as long as possible. Ideally, we're collecting this from totally undisturbed spaces. So when you apply it in your cropland, it self-perpetuates. Um, and so you're just kind of um, bringing back diversity. And um, the reason land doesn't just kind of um, evolve back to diversity or osmosis back to diversity um, is because uh, fungi doesn't blow in on the wind. Fungal spores, they, they could be picked up by the wind, but in general, if you live a little bit from, uh, from untouched land, um, you're not going to get fungus unless a bird, you know, comes into your yard and poops it there, or a deer walks it on their feet into your yard, or something. It's, there needs to be some sort of carrier. It doesn't just kind of roll down the hill and show up in your yard. So if the diversity of the fungal community has died off, um, you're going to be lacking until you shift that. And, and are you are you uh, so talking this, about mycorrhizal fungi or um, so not know. just mycorrhizal? Yes, mycorrhizal fungi, but not just mycorrhizal fungi. Um, kind of the whole gambit, all the way into anaerobes. Um, and uh, yeah, so what we want um, again, back to that kind of humility thing. If in the untouched zone in your area, there's this, this, you know, community, you say there's four untouched zones, you know, equal distance from your place and they have slightly different communities. What you want is the combination of those communities, maximum diversity, but we're not trying to say, I need this strain. Um, we're not that smart yet. What works in Australia where you farm, what the best diversity or um, is, really we're going to take that with humility as it's given by nature. So the, the best scenario that we're looking at with kind of a recognition that we have no idea how microbes work in interconnectivity in nature we don't understand the whole of the scientific community is not even be, and we're just beginning to even ask the questions on how these microbes work together to, um, to, to create this soil food web. Um, as far as bacteria, yeast, fungi, 
what their each role is in relationship to each other. Um, so what we want is we want the balance that nature's already struck. And so we want that diversity to come into our farmland. And yeah, so indigenous microorganisms, that, that whole process is to take a snapshot of nature's diversity as best um, and then brew it out on a substrate, um, mingle it as, as by way of social introduction, if you will, with the, the soil microbes of our farmland soil or, or some local soil. So we also are getting some nematodes, microarthropods, um, and um, et cetera. And that um, then finished product is this kind of um, culture of beneficial and diverse microbial life that actually is going to love our winter, summer, spring, fall, because it's done it for the thousand years in that forest you took it from. And one thing I got out of your talk, um, the one I mentioned at the conference, was that there's so many fungal spores in that. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so so IMO3 um, is this process of taking that inoculum you took out of the forest and putting it on a, like a carbohydrate, and when I say carbohydrate, really what I've come to understand is that we want something with a great fat protein profile, um, like a rice bran or a some oats, because um, and and this is somewhat of a hypothesis of mine um, that it's based in some some research that's been done, but there's there's more study to do. But that um, fungi actually they're they're food source um or their their kind of ideal is the 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 fats and proteins in the cell walls of plants and the fats and proteins in plants so plant fats and proteins being their ideal and um rice you know has one of the protein profiles of every any grain there is um, it's, it's incredible. And rice bran, which is a byproduct of that process of milling rice, is um, is full of fats and proteins, and so are oats, um, whereas wheat is, has a terrible fat and protein profile. Um, and so you grow it out on the substrate. And what happens is your, your aerobic microorganisms, all your, your big fungi, they grow in that top two, three, four inches of your pile. Um, whether you've put in some of these nutrients like FPJ, um, seawater, et cetera, and they're processing and chewing on, and the spores are waking up in this rice bran, some wood chips, you know, et cetera. And the top three inches, four inches, it's a little cooler, much more oxygen. They go and they form these beautiful uh, clusters and, and cakes of um, uh, mycelium, you know, these, these fungal strands. And then you turn it just to keep the whole pile kind of aerobic and and uh, evenly distributed. And those those blooming fungal bodies might end up in the center, some of them. And it's too hot in the center of the pile. It'll be a little warmer than the outside. And so they'll sporulate. They'll send their nucleus into a spore head and sporulate. And uh, you have not really seeds, but for for uh, for understanding, there you'll have a ton of fungal seeds from that one uh, fungal body, maybe 10 or, or something uh, or more. 
And then that happens in the center. And then when you turn it again, that that increased amount of fungal spores comes out to the surface. They all get cooled down. There's still that moisture and that good oxygen. And they wake up and they start to uh, form hypha again. And uh, you're constantly um, turning it in the end as it winds down as far as moisture and temperature. We're never going above 120 degrees so that we're keeping that whole microbial profile. Um, then in the end, as it kind of dries out, what you're left with is like a 60-pound bag of marbles all under just tons and tons and tons of fungal spores as everything's gone dormant because the water's dried out. And, uh, and so that material then you do with soil, it wakes up again, but then sporulates again. And then you spread it on your cropland and you're basically feeding your cropland with this fungal life that you got out of the forest or your local kind of untouched area. And so it's this really special and effective way to, um, for a farmer to produce his own inoculum to get that whole wheel of the soil food web in, in, your, in your soil working. Yeah. And, and it's different than a product like EM, isn't it? Because uh, there's studies showing that that doesn't necessarily persist in the soil. Like once once they add it to the soil, it might entrain the microbes in the right way, in a certain way, but you won't see them under a microscope, will you? Yeah, it's a great... Uh, EM is a great soil conditioner and, and really useful for growing crops. But you're buying it, and you need to buy it again and again and again. It's not going to self-perpetuate in the same way. Now, if you lived in Okinawa, Japan, where these microbes were found, maybe there's some self-perpetuation there, but then you probably don't need to buy EM. You just need to you know, do a little IMO culture in your, in your local area, and, and you'd have all those uh, microbes also, this you know, EM is just a, a study um, uh, proving of some effectiveness of some of the microbes they found in their you know backyard in Okinawa, Japan, um, and we have those same dynamics working here. But the cool thing is, they're already loving our soils. They're already loving our temperatures, and and you don't have to buy them year after year because you'll find them year after year because they will self perpetuate. And a lot of those products that are lab-grown um, or kind of were made in another place, um, they will have a fall-off of about six months. Um, you know, and that's not, all, that's not to say that you might not have a strain or something that persists, but the reality is no, no, organ, no microorganism is supposed to exist in a vacuum. They have roles where their byproducts become prime products for other microorganisms. And like I said, we're just beginning to understand this. But in my time looking at it under a microscope, looking at IMO under a microscope, I mean, I saw wild things, things I'm, I'm looking forward to one day understanding, like, like big, giant, you know, eight micrometer uh, fungal hypha with a super highway of bacteria going using it, the tube of the fungi to go, like, to travel. They were, the bacteria is inside the fungal strand and, and moving around. And, you know, obviously that has a purpose. There, there's some sort of interaction that's going on in there. But, but what is it? I have no idea. You know, we have, like, we have bacteria in our gut, and they have all these roles. But what, it, what is a fungus 
in in your garden doing if it's a tube and bacteria moving up and down and maybe the is the fungus a a, a speedway for for transferring you know some of these bacteria from one place to another to chew on this or that and you know what's the what sort of biochemical communications happening there those are those are fun you know curiosities that one day maybe my kids will understand is you know we're just beginning to ask the questions but well, yeah, sure. no i think um I think some of those products you can get are really useful, good for growing food. And at the same time, if I can produce something better out of my backyard for a fraction of the price, you know, then, uh, yeah, this becomes just a key of knowledge for empowering a farmer to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and Chris, you, uh, you have actually spent a bit of time with the microscope, haven't you? You've done uh, Elaine Ingham's course, is that right? Um, so I think she offers a course online uh, now. That course didn't exist when I was learning a microscope for, from her. Um, she just, I, I had a lot of gifts um, that I'm, I'm really grateful for. I, I think the, the painter of nature had uh, for me to understand a little bit of this. Um, Master Cho's first intensive class was taught in my podunk, tiny little town in North Kohala on the Big Island of Hawaii. Um, Elaine Ingham came out to that same podunk little town and taught um, us how to use the microscope and explain fungal to bacterial ratio and kind of dug into it with us. I bought a microscope that same day. And yeah, so that was, you know, 2009. Um, so that was 11 years ago. And, uh, and I spent, I mean, I spent years where I was, I was looking at, you know, what we were making three times a week for years straight. Um, and, and just kind of checking my work, changing things based on side by side trials we did. And, um, so yeah, I, I feel like in, in that time, there was a lot of calibration where I was learning to, you know, see clearly or understand what I was looking at. And uh, that takes time. There's there's no shortcut to that. Um, and uh, but yeah, I'm really grateful for that opportunity. And I'd like to mention too that this is what um, Cho Han Yu has been doing as well, right? Like for all these years, he's been trialing stuff and and perfecting it, or or at least uh, getting better at it. And you've taken over. Uh, one of the aspects or, you know, some, some of the, this natural farming. So when people come in and say, hey, that's cool, but I could do it this way. I'm just going to do it in my worm farm or in my basement or something. You can try an experiment. That's great, but there's no experience behind it. Right, right. Yeah, and um, Ben, in in no means trying to, to correct, but I do want to, Clarify. So I use um, Chohan Yu's name to differentiate because there's also Cho Young Sung, the, the guy that's created Jadam, kind of this iteration of natural farming, um, just to clarify between the two of them. Um, but um, I think, uh, again, back to learning from cultures, just to jump back to that, uh, it's really, really important um, in uh, Korean culture. Um, that the, the kind of the honorific is a part of that name. And so um, Master Cho or um, 
sensei, you know, calling him um, Cho Han Yu, for me, a student of his would be um, uh, quite, dis- could be quite considered quite disrespectful in um, Korean culture. Okay. So um, I appreciate yeah. that. No, no, I've actually noticed that in the K dramas too. They have different, you know, depending on if you're older than someone or uh, what your yeah. relationship is, you call them by it. It's a, it's a respect thing, isn't it? It's yeah, and it's it's so much more um, uh, important, I guess you would say, than than maybe a, a Western mind would think. Um, so yeah, really, really a big deal uh, in their in their culture. So that's good to yeah. Know. So yeah, yeah, just just throwing that back into the things I learned from cultural exchange, um, but the. Um, yeah, the, the amount of trial and error that's gone into some of these creations, um, isn't just, uh, doesn't just begin with, um, Master Cho. A lot of these things are 300 year old processes from China or Japan where they don't repeat, they don't keep doing it because it doesn't work. They keep doing it because it's based on science, which science, as we know, is the, the study of nature through observation and experimentation and and farmers have been the best scientists for generations and generations. And so to take something that's 300 years old, um, that's been proving effective and that's why it's been passed on. Um, and then before it's ever tried to change the recipe and come up with a little, you know, um, winging it kind of version um, yeah, it's, it's the definition of hubris. It's the definition of, uh, of, um, you know, pride that, you know, what I can come up with in my head and in two minutes is better than this 300 year old, um, passed down practice. And so I'm going to change the recipe before I even understand why the recipe is there in the first place. And so, yes, I, uh, I'm taking a moment to kind of hammer that nail in. I know you didn't directly ask the question I'm answering, but no, it's, he's, um, he's done a lot of, yeah, seeing what works and, um, and so have others before him. And so that's, that's kind of the beauty of, of this, what we've been given. It, it's kind of a, just an elegant, um, nicely boiled down, um, method that's, doable it still is incredibly complex but it's it's quite doable um for for the farmer i love it it's it's an art and a science yeah and i'll jump in there and say one more thing i have never met two natural farmers that do it exactly the same in korea and uh anywhere else so there are things that People, maybe, maybe no one ever can get rice bran in Iceland. And so they're never going to have this exact same kind of process of IMO3. Or um, maybe uh, vodka, like in India. In India, you know, they only do ginger and garlic OHN. They never have any dry herbs because the incredible cost of importing dry herbs to India is it's ridiculous. But they have plenty of ginger and garlic because they grow it there and um you know so there are are things that change um i love the use of um humic acid uh, or vermicompost 
in IMO um, three and four um, as a small edition um, that wasn't taught that way by Master Cho. He said, hey, you do want some of this humic material from the forest because it's good fungal food, basically. Uh, not that he said that in exactly so many words, but that's how he explained it. And I said, well, you know, that's it's kind of prohibitive for me every time I want to make this to get, you know, this humic material, the rotting leaves or decomposing leaves. And so um, we use humic acid. And I teach that and talk about why, you know, so that that kind of trail of knowledge isn't lost. This is what he said, and this is what I'm doing. Um, but but yeah, there there are things that adapt along the way or based on where you live. But um, you know, and in, in Korea they use rice straw, um, not wood chips. You know, because they have abundance of rice straw. I don't get free rice straw from every farmer around me, uh, like they do in Korea. So, um, but there's lots of wood chips. And so, yeah, it's, there's, there's room for things to shift a little, but I always encourage a, a new student, um, that learn it just the way it's taught first so that you can come to understand those variables and, and the things that you don't know. And then after you're effectively applying or using the recipe, then you're able to understand what can change um, and still be effective. Right, right. And I feel like in my journey, I'm learning humility as well because it's like, oh, I'm going to do something this way. I know that's not the way that it was taught, but I'm going to do it anyways and then <laughs> put all this work in and I'm like, oh, I should have just listened. Yeah. So, yeah, how's your journey been with all this, Ben? I know we've we've talked a lot, but you you just made uh, IMO three. That's right. I'm in the in the process of uh, making some IMO four now. Um, so this is this has been great. I mean, I feel like every time I do it, I'm learning something else, learning something that is hard to learn from. Um, Either, conversation. either either conversation or um, YouTube videos or whatever else. It's the and I'm really a hands-on kind of guy, so get in there, do it, see the minute differences between you know this and that. Uh, this time with the IMO four, I've I actually got some red clay, and then I got some um, uh, some soil from the other farm. So it's like adding those together which i haven't done in that way before and okay what's happening what's what am i seeing what's different what's the same is the smell the same you know is all these different things um and i think recently i've just been more inspired to really focus on okay let me do this the best that i can it's not just trying to make a cheap um product or fertilizer or whatever I would like this to be a, a craft that I um, develop, you know, and and it just takes hours, uh, you know, um, of learning to do that. It's not it's not just something that you can just, and I mean learning like actually hands on, not just reading a book or something. Yeah, but what really got me into it was the whole idea of. Oh yeah, like probiotics, they're, they're good for us. They must be good for the soil. Oh yeah, learning, doing stuff with nature. Yeah, that's cool. That's 
So it was is more of just like a good idea. But the more I got into it, the more down the rabbit hole I went. Uh, uh, the more I'm getting passionate about it. Very cool. Yeah, I think um, I think that's a. I think you described maybe the the third kind of important quality or characteristic of a good natural farmer, and that's love. You know, um, we were sitting in that first you know five day intensive class with Master Cho and Ju Young, his daughter, and. Um, my friend was sitting next to me, uh, Poncho San Pedro. He's the head of, he's Crazy Horse, Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Anyways, there's a rock band, American rock band. And um, he's my farming buddy there in Kohala. And we're sitting next to each other and Poncho's taking notes and I'm listening and taking notes. And Poncho leans over to me and he's kind of scratching his head, a little bit chuckling, kind of dumbfounded. And he's like, I've written down most of what he said. And like 80% of what I've written down is love, the word love. And right. he's like, how, how are we going to, how do we do this on your farm? You know, because he was excited about me, you know, a large scale farmer, you know, having this kind of practice. And, and so we, we were, you know, both just kind of. It was it was a bit shell shocking that first time because it was so much information and and uh, it was all translated from English or Korean to English and not not by people that totally understood natural farming so it was there was some difficulty but um, but we got love out of it and uh, over the years I think what you just described as it's not this quick and you know it's like doing it as best you can doing it with care of how well you do it and, and what that, how that will give you this better thing in the end. And it's worth it. It's worth that care. Um, and so I, a working translation of, of love, I think, I think the love is a perfect word for it and it needs no translating because it really is, you know, the love uh, a mother has for a child, you know, you've, uh, we, we were talking to you about your pile online. It's like, okay, you have a, a little baby now. Don't, don't neglect it, you know, take care of it every day. And, right. you know, as you turn it and care for it, but, you know, so there's that, there's that, you know, love of a caretaker. And, um, but I, I say a, a conscientious care for what you're doing, you know, kind of like an honest care for the quality of the process, not, not, oh, no one's looking. I'm just going to cut these corners. And um, so I think if you can't kind of settle into that, I think it's going to be kind of frustrating because the lack of care will directly correlate to kind of a lack of quality product or lack of effect. Yeah, isn't that interesting? makes me think about the whole uh, agricultural food system, which is a whole nother conversation in, in and of itself, but, <laughs> but conscientious, conscientious care. That's, that's what I get from Joel Salatin as well. Cool. So um, we talked a little bit about IMO or a bit, bit more about IMO and that sort of leaves the rest of all of those farming inputs, um, you know, 
mine, as I think a lot of people's first introduction to Korean natural farming is an FPJ or an FAA, where fermenting plant juice. Um, but from what I've heard you say, it's only 75 to 80% uh, or 75 to 80% is the IMO and the rest of it is like the, the icing on the top is the, the other inputs. <laughs> Can you can you yeah. talk a little bit about um, maybe not so much going through the other inputs about but the the idea behind it the theory behind the the nutritive cycle theory? Yeah, yeah, it's um, there's a lot of philosophy um, connected with that, and I don't say that to say well it's philosophy not science or philosophy not fact, but. Um, you know, there's there's a bit of a, a why uh, associated with the nutritive cycle that's explained again coming from an Asian culture. Explaining things through philosophy is is very uh, central and normal, um, and so um, the a kind of core premise of the nutritive cycle um, is this idea of the right amount of nutrient at the right time and the right nutrient. Um, and so it's, it's less of, I need my soil packed with as much, um, uh, you know, nuclear energy as possible, as much fertilizer as possible to more. I want my soil to be alive. Again, that 80% IMO being, you know, the plant above ground represents the plant below ground. So my roots are thriving because my soil is alive. Then um, the food, the feeding, this nutritive cycle idea is that I'm feeding my plant then a, uh, a small amount or an accurate amount. You know, I don't, me and you, uh, another, another core philosophical um, kind of concept in the nutritive cycle is you and I are one. Um, and, and this is this, it, I, I would say it's more of a teaching method than anything um, to help humans understand plants, but it's, it's help. It's, it's this idea of correlating um, plants life cycle with a human life cycle and, and looking at the incredible similarities, how, how like us, you know, um, their, their journey is, you know, they have, um, uh, pregnancy, you know, which is the, the flowering or putting on seeds and fruit to, to fruiting, you know, which is us having a baby, um, and then the baby, you know, um, an infant and it's, and it's first food. What is its first food? Well, its first food isn't you know, gangbuster nitrogen, gangbuster protein. You know, we're not feeding a, a day-old infant steak. Its first food is colostrum, which is by and large um, mineral um, and not fat and protein. Um, and then later, um, you know, right after the colostrum, it's getting this, you know, fatty milk. But, um, you know, the, the philosophy helps us we kind of put those in parallel and we're able to see, oh yeah, well, humans have these kind of fluctuations 
in their growth and in their need, in their nutrient needs. Um, and for us as humans, that's a very normal concept. We're, we're very um, okay with, I don't cut up a steak and feed it to my one-day-old. You know, I don't feed uh, potatoes to my one-week-old. You know, I feed uh, a very light um, and healthy um, meal. And we're, we're, we're great with the concept that a, a 13 to 18-year-old boy is going to eat you out of house and home. The level that an amount that a 13-year-old or an 18-year-old you know, boy or girl for that matter eats is drastically more than a three-year-old boy or even a, a, a 50-year-old man, you know? Um, and, and so that, um, that idea of um, different nutrients at different times that we're okay with or we kind of see as normal in the human world, um, it helps us to kind of understand that a plant goes through these cycles too, you know? Um, and a lot of the nutritive cycle actually focuses on um, the human, on, in the human world, it focuses on the journey of a female because um, it's um, closely correlated because there's, you know, um, young adulthood, adulthood, pregnancy, childbirth, this idea of, a fruiting plant, a plant that goes through a journey from infancy to producing a crop, um, like a pepper, you know, is that's the, the plant's baby is the pepper, you know, the fruit that we are harvesting as the, and, um, or the grain of the rice plant like a baby. And so, yeah, so there's this really neat, um, kind of, um, process of looking at how a plant goes on that nutritive journey. And so, you know, have you ever heard of a pregnant woman craving something sour or something strange as far as food goes while she's pregnant? Well, this is a, a call that her body's making to uh, a different mineral or, or a, an increase in um, mineral. One of those minerals being phosphorus that's necessary for producing bones and definitely often associated with sour um, flavor. Um, but, um, and so, so the, the plant, you know, at, um, in, in natural farming, we don't feed a, a seed or seedling a bunch of nitrogen. It gets nothing until it has a couple true leaves so it's potting mix, whatever. We don't need a bunch of food. We have this very light food called maintenance solution or seed soak. That's FPJ, OHN, and brown rice vinegar. And it's, it's as much mineral as it is food. You know, FPJ is a plant food, but it's light. And so um, another kind of core philosophy is it's better to suffer when you're young. Um, you know, just in... And that might be more to explain than we have time for today. But, but just this idea that um, we don't need to coddle a plant um, at a young age because we'll produce weak plants um, that won't thrive and go gangbusters when it's time to put on fruit. And so we want to actually give a little bit of opportunity for them to 
push for nutrients and produce those root structures and, um, and um, kind of uh, prepare themselves for any, you know, uh, drought condition and, you know, not that they're going to have, but just the, um, the idea that if, if we're applying the right amount of nutrients at the right time, the plant actually gets healthier and is able to produce more than if we just load them up with a bunch of fertilizer right in the beginning. Yeah, it's it's really fun, and um, like much of natural farming, it, it's incomplete because you know different. All, a lot of plants are different, so there's not this big book of every specific day nutritive cycle for every plant or crop that exists. Where you just flip to the day, I'm on week two. Okay, I'm feeding it this. There's a bit of a need to understand the concept or the philosophy um, to be able to properly apply it, and then kind of. On top of that, kind of a little bit of um, trial and error to make to hone yourself to or hone your process to the best kind of feeding cycle for your crop. Right. So, so what I hear you say is it's it's not like hydroponics in the way that you're just feeding this solution and that solution, um, but it's more about giving them giving the plants just a little bit um, at the right time. Although that could be similar to um, hydroponics, yeah. Well, and it's not—it's not just a little bit um, in that, like, oh, it's always just a small amount of food. Like IMO five would be considered a great way to prep your soil for planting um, in natural farming. IMO five is IMO four um, mixed equal parts or around or less IMO4 or more IMO4 with uh, like a high nitrogen. So you're making like a really high quality, um, high nitrogen compost, like manure compost um, with this great microbial life and putting that on your soil. So it's a ton of food. So you might have abundantly lush soil full of fertility and, and food. And so it's not so much that it's, you got to have kind of anemic soil. We don't, that's, that's no part of it. Um, so you, you want to feed your plants, especially if you're trying to push production and you're a farmer trying to get as much yield as you can. Nothing wrong with feeding your plants, but um, it's kind of the, um, yeah, the foliar is kind of this this lighter, homeo, almost homeopathic quantities. Um, and because these nutrients are so micronized, they're these really highly absorbable plant available um, forms of nutrient because of the fermentation process. Um, they're able to have near on 100% uptake versus something, you know, in a salt where you're going to get 20%, um, you know, uptake. And, and so uh, using a little bit, even though it is a little bit, still ends up being a huge impact on kind of the plants growing process right so it's more effective yeah definitely i would i would say without a doubt i would say that faa as far as fish fertilizer products is better than anything you can buy um because hydrolysates have a component taken out um and uh so do emulsions and so it's it's kind of like an incomplete fish product um and then on top of that this being for micronized through fermentation and fungal breakdown um, instead of through cooking or blending. Um, it's just, it's an, a far superior product. Mm-hmm. So it's very similar to um, 
the way you, you get lots of nutrients out of, say, sauerkraut or something because of the fermentation process. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we could talk about this for, I could talk about this for <laughs> quite a few more hours, but we're going we're gonna to round it out there. There's one more question I'd like to ask you, Chris, just to sort of uh, finish up here. Mm-hmm. I'd like to um, I'd like to know your this is your like personal opinion on how do you frame your connection with nature with with the natural world um, I've mm-hmm. heard you talk a lot about stewardship um, about um, you know a creator and I'd like to hear your your personal idea of of how do you frame your connection with nature mm. good question So, um, another thing we could talk a lot about, spend some time on, um, I guess I'll start with the, the idea of stewardship. Um, you know, I like, um, the term steward, I use it and, um, it's kind of my high ideal. I also use the term soil smith and, you know, um, to, to, to be a producer or a quality producer, we don't necessarily have to be a steward. Um, you could just use raw materials and make a, a fine product um, or, or an end and um, without really a, a care or a um, connection to the impact you have where you are. But the idea to me of stewardship is that um, taking care of something that's not mine, um, uh, being a steward for another. And um, as I interact with nature, and every single year um, I gain a slightly better understanding of how incredibly complex it is, how many facets and... the depth of interconnectivity that happens and goes on in, in the birds and the rain and the sun and the and gravity, the moon and, and soil and worms and um, the components of soil and the microbes and the various microbes and all those things working in tandem, you know, and, and if I took a hundred people that were talented musicians I threw them in a room with, uh, you know, and, and, and told them to start playing. It would be mayhem, utter chaos. But if you take a hundred musicians and put a sheet music in front of them and put a man, you know, or a woman with a white stick in their hand, keeping tempo, it's this sound of, you know, it's beautiful sound. We all love symphony music and and um so i I see nature as um screaming of declaring uh a uh, an orchestra leader a um symphony writer and um you know or an artist a painter of a beautiful living painting um which i think we're a part of and uh so i um yeah i feel i opportunity to take care of this gift that nature is, um, that life is, uh, by a obviously 
very loving uh, creator, a painter, uh, orchestra leader. Um, and I think that uh, approaching what I get to do or, or farming with gratitude as this, this central kind of reason, um, you know, that's, that's probably my, my, uh, a main motivator for me. I think why I teach online is gratitude. I feel like I was given a gift. Our family farm was given a gift and, um, and the way, I mean, the way I got the gift from just opportunity that I did definitely did not work for, um, in, um, just some knowledge that was showed up in our podunk town. I see it as, uh, something to be really grateful for, but also the way, um, master Cho gave it away. Um, he, um, was very generous with his time and his knowledge and, um, you know, I think in in um, keeping with or um, being a student of his, I think sharing it in the same way is the kind of privileged responsibility I have in Hawaii. The words kuleana, and um, and it's a, a privileged responsibility, and and so um, yeah, I um, I I walk in nature and I. Um, talk with or or listen to uh, a uh, a loving uh, painter of my heart and uh, yeah i uh, i'm really grateful for the gift it is and i think if if we neglect to take care of it i think there's a uh, a uh, something not right in that i think i think whether we like it or not we're stewards here and um, being a, a good steward of uh, what we have, um, I think a, an important role we get to play. Mm, mm-hmm. Well, I love the way that you uh, described your your uh, connection. Very poetic for a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Chris Trump. Thank you for your time uh, coming back on The Probiotic Life. Uh, people can find you online. We'll have all the links there. Is there any uh, place in particular that you would want people to reach out to you? Um, yeah, uh, naturalfarming.co. And uh, you can email me at chris at naturalfarming.co. And, um, yeah, um, peek in on the website. Um, it'll get a bit of a makeover and, uh, hope to have a little more to offer there. So, um, yeah. And then I got a class coming up in August. Fantastic. That's great. Yeah. Well, we'll put all the links up there. Um, and once again, Chris, thanks for being on the probiotic life. Thanks, man. Have a good one. I really get inspired by Chris Trump. He has a lot to offer. I love the way he thinks about nature and learning from nature, that humility. Uh, So check out his website, naturalfarming.co. I'll also link in the notes to some of the videos he's done, the early videos he's done on indigenous microorganisms. I encourage you to learn about them, get into it, create a probiotic life around you. And I would love to hear about how you are creating a probiotic life. Reach out and share with us. 
May the beneficial microbes be with you. And until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.